melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish. Psalm 68. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth quaked. The heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. The Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil. Though you men lie among the sheepfolds. The wings of a dove covered with silver. Its pinions with shimmering gold. When the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Zalman. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode, yes, where the Lord will dwell forever? The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands, the Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord, who daily bears us up. God is our salvation, Selah. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. But God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that you may strike your feet in their blood, that the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. Your procession is seen, O God. The procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last. Between them, virgins playing tambourines. Bless God in the great congregation. The Lord, O you who are of Israel's fountain. There is Benjamin, the least of them in the lead. The princes of Judah in their throng. The princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. Summon your power, O God. 
the power of God by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord, Selah, to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel, and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary. The God of Israel, he is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Well, what you see before you is the result of a little COVID attack on the Lander home. And not just the Lander home, apparently Josiah was on a trip with some of his crew friends and Olivia survived. Congratulations to you, both Jenna and Josiah came away from that with, uh, with COVID. I've tested, but it seemed wise for me to be able to do this in a mask. But I do want to know, from your perspective, can you guys hear? Is this okay? It was a little bit more muted than we would like, but not much is exactly as we would like these days, so we're just going to live with this as long as this works. We're in a series of the Psalms, Psalms that I was trying to plan that had a burden that would remind God's people that we are at home in Him. Last week, we were in Psalm 84. The difficulty of, of choosing psalms like we do every January, we, were, we want to rally the sermon around a central theme, and yet we want to do it from the psalms, is that there are, as you probably know in the psalms, uh, not always a consistent story that's told over one psalm. Many psalms are like casseroles. They've got this ingredient and that ingredient and that ingredient. They all kind of bake together into one, you know, large expression of praise. And Psalm 68 had a couple moments, a couple verses that really resonated with me. They were verses that I really wanted to include in this series. But as often will be the case next week when Brad preaches from Psalm 90 or the week afterwards when Michael preaches from Psalm 37 or the last week whenever we're back again or I'm back again with you and we're preaching, I'm preaching from Psalm 23, there will be elements of the Psalm that really hammer home on the theme that we're trying to get at. And Psalm 68 is one of those that doesn't only talk about God settling the solitary, and being a protector for those who are most vulnerable. This psalm has a lot more in it, doesn't it? It's a long psalm. And what I asked Mary to do, and what you could see is what we tried to do in splicing it together, was to let really these two voices of Psalm 68 kind of carry the theme. It's a long psalm. Most of the time, if you're not with us regularly, most of the time we don't try to tackle 35 verses all at once, but we're going to do that. Seemed like, you know, with some 
some limitations on my being able to speech that pre- speak that being able to preach more verses would probably be a great approach today. That said, listen to the first four verses once again as we hear this as we we hear this theme uh, in in balance with one another. First two very military kind of verses. God shall arise. His enemies shall be scattered. Those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. Sounds like a nice homey kind of verse, doesn't it? Verse three, but the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, exalt before him. And in four verses, you have those two themes. There is this portrait of God who is going to defend the vulnerable and he's going to do that by bringing his wrath and his vengeance against those who are his enemies. (coughs) This is going to make it easy. All right. <coughs> Should have warned you that I tend to cough more when I wear a mask than I don't when I don't wear a mask. But again, here we are. So God is the one who's going to be a defender. And as a defender, we're going to see that he is defending someone from someone. And ultimately, those are the two themes that really emerge in this. By virtue of context... The psalm is also written in order to be able to remind us of a moment from the past. In the book of Numbers, Moses said that Moses wrote this, ultimately about himself. <coughs> he said, whenever the ark set out, Moses said, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, He said, return, O Lord, to the 10,000 thousands of Israel. Now, we don't know exactly the context when David wrote this, but it's very possible that because he's borrowing language from Moses about the ark of God going out and the ark of God coming back, David in Psalm 68 sort of references both elements of what Moses would say on the departure and on the arrival of the ark. It's possible that David wrote this about the time whenever he brought the Ark of God back in to Jerusalem. We read that in 2 Samuel 6. It says, So David brought the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the Ark of God had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. Now, you might think of that moment in 2 Samuel 6 as the moment when his wife was really upset with the way he danced. I'm not sure if you remember that as well. There's a little argument that came out afterwards. He was dressed up like a priest, not a priest in all of the priestly garments, but a priest sort of in the undergarments. And David is out really dancing and dancing. And the argument that takes place afterwards is less significant probably for our context 
This is a little speculative, but it's, it's an informed speculation. This might have been the moment in David's life when he was remembering what Moses said when the ark would come back. And so he wrote this psalm in order to remind the people of God, we have been opposed from the beginning. David is telling the nations around him and telling his nation, we are very aware of the antagonism that you have towards God. He's remembering that because the immediate context is that the ark was stolen by the Philistines. It had been taken in battle. The Israelites had used it as a good luck charm. God wasn't too thrilled with that. And so he let the battle turn against the Israelites. That didn't go so well for the Philistines. And when they brought it back, David needed to remind the people of God through Psalm 68, we are opposed. Why? Because God is opposed. This wasn't just a message for Moses. This wasn't just a message for David and his people. This is a message we need to remember today. Part of the reason we as a church just recently affirmed these three values is because they've been assumed over the years, but because there is so much turning and changing and and so much tumult in our nation, not just politically, we realize there is, a, there is an energy against God and what he would defend in our world today. That's not just because of the current events, the current way that the values of our country are changing. This has been the situation for believers in every generation. And as we watch the erosion of Christian values in the United States, which are happening, we need to remember that we're just taking our place with those believers who have been aligned with God, but that are persecuted because of worldly cultural antagonism towards God. This isn't new for our day, but Psalm 68 is very alive today. So what we're going to look at in this Psalm, we're not necessarily going to do it all in order, but we're going to try and be pretty thorough through the Psalm. What we're going to try to do is look at four things that are true about God. See, what we're going to see in this psalm is that the bulk of the action, the verbs, have one subject, and it's not us. This psalm doesn't ask, what do we do? There's a couple things we'll say that we do at the end. But this psalm primarily has a subject of God. So we're going to look at four things that are true about God. I think they're going to help us as we understand that these things are also residually then true about us. But let's look at what's true about God. And the first thing I want you to notice, see these in the bulletin, you'll see them on the screen, is that God is opposed. God and his people face enemies on the earth. If we're not aware of that, Psalm 68 is going to remind us of that right from the outset. We see that in verse 1 and 2, right? God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, those who hate him shall flee before him, as wax melts before the fire, so the wicked shall perish. Do you hear the language that David is using to describe the opposition against God right from the beginning? God has enemies, God has those who hate him, and that results in a designation he places upon them where he calls them wicked. 
It's helpful for us to remember our study in Romans as we see this designation. Because it's so easy because of our moralistic tendencies. It's so easy for us to think that the primary designation of wickedness has to do with the good or bad things that you do or don't do. That's not the way that Paul describes what it means to be in rebellion against God in Romans, does it? What Paul says is there are wicked things. But wicked things come because of those who have either embraced or rejected God. Paul says that we, living in the world that we do, have a real awareness of the fact that God is invisible, God is divine, and we ought to give him credit for what's going on in the world. We just look over the course of our generation. We don't see our world giving more and more credit to God, do we? We see that everyone is trying to explain away why God should get any credit. In other words, if we understand something, then clearly God doesn't get any credit for the fact that we now understand it because we don't need God now that we understand it. That tendency is millennia old. It's the fundamental underlying assumption of wickedness. People don't want to give credit to God. They want to live on their own. They want to live under their own authority, and they want to make sure that the world in which they live doesn't have to give any credit back to God for its very existence. And so God has these enemies. These enemies ultimately hate him, and that's what is the ultimate foundation of a real wickedness. Look at the way he describes it then. As he goes on and talks about those who have opposed God, these enemies that God faces on the earth, he calls them the rebellious in verse 6. And then he says that these wicked, rebellious ones have then aligned themselves in this battle against God. He describes it in verse 12 (coughs) as armies with kings that are coming into a battle against God. Let that sink in while I get a drink. If the the analogy of an army doesn't quite cut it, what David does then in verse 16 is he puts two mountains against each other. One mountain is settled way up north in a region called Bashan. Sometimes in poetic language, you'll see this region talked about as very fertile. The bulls of Bashan have been known as sort of this like representation of how prosperous the region is. But in this psalm, it's thought of more as a place of battle, a place of real antagonism against God. It's a place of opposition. So we have these two mountains. And so David says, why do you look with hatred? Oh, many peaked mountain, this mountain of Bashan at the mount that God desired for his abode. And then right after that, he describes this odd kind of reality. He said, the chariots of God are twice 10,000. The Lord is with them. Now, just like in other spots of this psalm, David is going to be referencing back to things that he knew were true. But in the same way, there are times that that the Lord uses what is true and then kind of backwards looks at the psalm. Interestingly enough, in the time after David, we have another reference to this chariots of God are twice 10,000. Not sure if it comes to mind, but it's what arose in my mind as I was thinking about this. We have two mountains. 
One in the, in the north that's looking down at Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. It is the many-peaked mountain. And David said, you are looking with hatred at our mountain. And it's as though this taller mountain is looking down on the mountain of God, sort of surrounding it. And there's a sense that the small little Mount Sinai is to be fearing what's going on from the, the great many-peaked mountain up in the north. It's the, the same sort of a geographic reference, a topographical reference to something that we're seeing through these kings, the rebellious, the wicked, those who hate God. There's a moment out into the future where that really plays out in real time. Remember the prophet Elisha was with a servant of his, and they, in a similar way, were kind of in a valley surrounded by what seemed to be the enemies that were all around them. But the servant didn't seem to have Elisha's confidence, and so Elisha asked God a favor in order to build his confidence. He said instead, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The thing that Elisha's servant was very aware of was the fact that they were under attack. The thing that Elisha's servant was not aware of is that God was very well prepared for the attack. If you, like me, kind of grew up over your your youth and into this season of life right now, and you've seen more and more the erosion of a sense that we as Christians are, are popular, we as Christians are representing in some way a, a set of values that the country wants to return to. And if over the last few years in particular, you've been surprised by the level of antagonism for things that would just seem basic assumptions that we would make just from reading the Bible, you might have a sense very much like Elisha's servant. There is a real amount of antagonism and hatred towards us. There's a real sense that what I thought we believed and were defending is now vilified and opposed. On one hand, you are not wrong. And if you're reading Psalm 68 and you don't come away with a sense that God has enemies who hate him and that God's people have enemies who also oppose them, then we're not paying attention. It's just Psalm 68 doesn't want to leave us only with that spot. Just like Elisha didn't want to leave his servant only with the sense of the enemies that are around. He wanted to say, not only is God opposed, but there is a second reality that's true. Whether you think of it as a mountain looking at another, as kings and enemies that are coming up into battle with God, there's something else that's true about God. Not only is he opposed, God is engaged. It's not as though that God has retreated within the walls of his fortress, that the world was surrounding him, and God is sitting there chewing his fingernails going, oh, what shall I do? What shall I do? I don't know what to think about the fact that the world now seems to hate me. That's not what God does. In fact, the first verse says this, God shall arise. God shall not cower. God shall not retreat. God shall not go back into his fortress and worry about what's going to happen. What the psalm declares over and over and over is that God arises and engages the battle. 
God shall arise. Oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the picture of God in this is not of God wondering, how am I going to deal with this? God is prepared, ready, and going to battle. More than that, God has declared the victory before it seems the battle is even over. Verse 11, it says, the Lord gives the word. Not only is preparing his army to go into battle, he is preparing another host of those who are going to announce the results of the battle. Verse 11, the Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee. God, in other words, hasn't been intimidated once. To use language from another psalm, when the kings of the world unite against God, he finds it so comical. He laughs. The kings of the armies, God knows exactly what's going to happen to them, and they flee. Now, one of the interesting things that happens in that section right there between verse 11 and verse 14, a few commentators, and again, I should just say this from the beginning, many of the commentators that I read approached this and said, this is one of the harder psalms to preach. And because it's so long, I want you to know this. I'm skipping over some of those hard parts. And I decided to, you know, announce things in the way that was most obvious. There's a little moment here where a lot of people seem to think that what's happening right around that time where the Lord gives the word, the women who announce the news are a great host, the kings of the armies flee. This is a reference, a lot of them think, back to a time in the period of the judges when God used a woman in particular to rally Israel to a victory. The woman's name was Deborah. And Deborah, the judge, and the commander that she rallied at the end had a bit of a song whenever the, the battle was over. Here's what the song sounds like. This is verse um, 4 and 5 from Judges chapter 5. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the regions of Edom, the earth trembled. And the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord. Even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Here's one of the reasons that they think that's part of what's going on in verse 11. Is that before that, in verse 7, we had read this. Oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked. The heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. David's borrowing from Deborah's song, and he's reminding us this isn't just true now. It's not just true now that God is opposed, but God is engaged. It wasn't just true in Moses' time, whenever Moses would rally the ark into battle, that God was opposed, but God is engaged. Let me remind you of one of the darker times in Israel's history when Israel was opposed over and over and over in the book of Judges. And he uses the same language that Deborah does in order to not only tell us something that's true now, but to remind us of a history lesson that's also been true. Psalm 68 works exactly that way for us. Already, just by reading something written by David, we're reminded of something that's gone on in Moses' time. 
something that's gone on in Deborah's time, something that later would go on in Elisha's time. And if that doesn't remind us that this is true today, I don't know what else does. God has consistently been opposed, but remember this, people. Remember this, church. God has also been consistently engaged, and he is engaged in the battle today as well. God is engaged in such a way that, verse 7, when he goes out before his people, when he marches through the wilderness, he brings results. The earth quakes and the heavens pour down rain. Not only is God opposed, but God marches forth into this battle, and then the results are also never in question. The third thing we see out of this psalm is that God is triumphant. Verse 21, God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan so that you may strike your feet in their blood. Or if you remember Mary continuing on so that your dogs can eat up their remains, essentially. This isn't exactly the kind of stuff that we put into children's ministry. So it's probably good we got the kids out of here. But this language is the language God inspired David to put before the people of God to remember this. Is God opposed? Yes. Is God engaged? Yes. But God will also win. And God is triumphant. Why? Because going into battle, he strikes down their heads and brings about their blood. Verse two, as smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. The enemies of God will be nothing more than a little bit of smoke coming up out of a fire that really, if you just gave it five to 10 seconds, you can't find it anymore. Or if that doesn't work for you, take your candle, throw it in the fire. One minute later, come back and tell me where it is. As wax melts before a fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. And what is it that's twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands? It's the chariots of God. The language of Psalm 68, to say it again, is not a God who's worried about the fact that he has enemies that oppose him and want to do damage. He is engaged in the battle. And not only is he engaged in the battle, he is prepared for the battle. Uh, King does not create chariots, train horses, and then try to figure out, oh, how am I going to ride these things? Because I wasn't ready for this battle. He had his chariots lined up. He had his forces ready to go. And he is riding into the battle in which he will be victorious. Verse 17 then is what, leads us to the one part of this that you may have recognized that's quoted in the New Testament. That's verse 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious that the Lord God may dwell there. The verse sound familiar? It ought to. Because it's the verse that Paul quotes, but interestingly enough, Paul changes one word. Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 says this, Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore it says, and here he quotes Psalm 68, 
When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. You see the word he changed? He gave gifts. Go back to Psalm 68 for a second. You read this in verse 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. Psalm 68 is going to remind us of this. Not only is the battle so engaged by God, not only is the the end result so decisive by God, not only is God's triumph so conclusive, but God wipes up, cleans up, and parades everyone that he has defeated before his people. That's the picture. The picture in verse 18 is of a triumphant God returning from the battle and leading a parade of all of the captives in line behind him. This was a common practice of the day. If you read a little bit in some of the other prophets and you hear about them describe the kings of Assyria or the kings of Babylon, one of the phrases you might hear is he leads them with a hook. That was a practice of the day to take those who had been defeated in battle, put hooks through their noses and put them on parade as those who had been defeated. Something we and the prophets are saying that and epitomizes the cruelty of those. But a similar practice is what's being described here. Maybe not with hooks through noses. But God is taking all of those who have opposed him and who have opposed his people And he is taking from them the gifts that they provide, leading a host of captives behind him. And then Paul says this. Here's what that means for us today. The question of the battle has sort of applications across the board. If we're just trying to think of it up to this real moment. I'm telling you that that we're opposed And you might be thinking of ways that you'd say, yeah, I kind of feel that today. I'm telling you that you're not alone in this battle, that God is engaged in it with you. And that might remind you of some specific ways in which you felt opposed or in which you felt supported by God. And that's kind of an encouragement to you. I'm telling you that God is victorious and ultimately will be victorious in this battle. And that might be encouraging for you. But Paul wants to describe the exact moment when the battle was engaged and lost by our enemy. And he points to Jesus. Paul says the arrival of the Son of God on the earth and his ultimate, what looked like defeat, but his ultimate defeat of death through his death and through his resurrection has resulted in something that changes the landscape of the battle forever. Since the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Here's who we are in the battle, according to Paul. We are those receiving back the king who are having the share or the spoils of the battle shared with us. Listen again to his language. Grace or gifts were given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high and he led this host of captives, he didn't just say he received gifts. Paul changes it to say this. You needed something? 
The risen son of God is going to give you everything that you need. Why? Because he has already defeated your enemy and he is sharing the spoils of that battle with you. In other words, according to Paul, the way we read Psalm 68 should not be as those that are potentially behind the fortress of the walls of the church, cowering and wondering what's going to happen. It should not be as those under assault, wondering, will God ever defend his own? Will God ever come to our rescue? That's not the language of Psalm 68, according to Paul. What Paul says is this, God has been opposed, God has been engaged, God is triumphant, and the fourth thing you need to know about God is this, he is now generous with you. Yes, there is a skirmish going on out there. But the main thing we need to know about God is that he has defeated the enemy and he is sharing the spoils. The last thing we need to understand about God is that he generously settles and prospers his people. Listen to verse 3 once again. The righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the desert. His name is the Lord, so exult before him. The reason that we might not, though, is because we misunderstand our difficulties and deficiencies today. And so right after verses three through, or right after there, in, in continuing through verses three through six, he begins to address those difficulties and deficiencies we might feel. He talks about the fatherless and the widows those who are solitary and who are captives. Because those realities are still true. The battles that God has been engaged in since the beginning of time have ravaged our land. They've messed with our families and our community. They have pockmarked the landscape of our lives in such a way that we feel the results in the battle of sin. And we can often ask, what's truer right now? Is it that my father or my husband was taken away? Is it that my friends were taken away? Is it that my freedom feels like it was taken away? And David says, those things are all true. There are those who are fatherless. There are those who are widows. There are those who are solitary. And there are those who have been prisoned. But understand this about God. He, the mighty victor in the battle, does not return from the battle and then look for his mighty men and his noble princes. He doesn't come back from the battle and say, who are the important and the honored ones that I can make more important and more honored? That's not what the mighty king who returns from battle does. When God defeats his enemies, he looks for those who have suffered and he settles them. To the fatherless, God becomes a father. 
to the vulnerable widows, God becomes a protector. To those who feel solitary and homeless, God settles them in homes. And to those who feel like their freedom has been stripped from them in their captivity, he leads them to prosperity. That is your God. It was this portion of the psalm that really drew me to 68 in the beginning. And what we could have done is to just take these few verses and say, as we think about how God settles us in homes, and as we think about how God creates family for us, let's just spend our time in these verses. But I want you to know, what Psalm 68 does in a broader way is to say there is something truer than the loss that you think you've felt. And that's the victory and the final plan of God to restore what's been lost. Is it true that families have been marked by the loss of parents who care? Absolutely. Is it true that in real and in metaphorical ways that, that marriages and families have been decimated? It's, it's so true. I don't think any of us would be unable to get up and talk about disappointments or difficulties that we felt even in the immediate circle of our family. All of us could share a part of that story. And sometimes when that story feels loudest, it feels like that's the thing that's truest. Is what you've lost or what's hurt, how we've been disappointed. Or you'd even look, perhaps, and you'd say, it's not just that in my family circle, I would say that sin has affected me. I realize I've been the agent of doing harm to others. I've dropped the ball. I haven't kept my vows. I've been unfaithful. I've almost been rebellious. And have I ruined God's plan? I read these verses and I say, no. Sin never ruins God's plan. He has always had his chariots. He has always had his plan. And he has always planned to be engaged and triumphant in the battle. So that those of us who feel alone can be brought to homes. Those of us who feel like sin has always had the whip on our backs telling us what to do can actually hear Jesus say, I defeated sin. You no longer have to live under its tyranny again. I am leading you as a prisoner out from under its mastery into prosperity. This is the burden of this psalm for us so that we can live in God's land and we can experience, as verse 9 and 10 says, reign in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished, so that your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided, not for the powerful and not for the noble, you came from battle and provided for the needy. God settles and he prospers his people. So that we can read in verse 19, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. 
God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation. And to God, the Lord, belong deliverances from death. So summon your power, O God, the power, O God, by which, and listen to this verse, hear this phrase, the power that you use to defeat your enemies, yes, but the same power by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you, nobles shall come from Egypt. God is ready to parade your enemies behind you. Brothers and sisters, what this means is you no longer have to live under the tyranny of sin. You no no longer have to bear bitterness as though it's your friend when it would mean to destroy you. You no longer have to do what this world says you ought to do in order to gain its favor and its popularity because the Lord himself has promised to bear you up and the Lord himself has promised to work for you. What kind of a king is this who would spend himself on the battlefield and then not return and say, now what can those I have protected do for me? But instead, what can I in my victory do for you? This feels so backward. And yet it's so true. God is opposed, he's engaged, he's triumphant, and he's generous. So what ought we to be? If, as we've seen, God is the hero of this and we are not, the question is, what ought we to do then instead? There's three things that I want us to see as we wrap up this psalm. And it begins with this. Sing. Celebrate. Church, let's not get so used to the fact that these things are true that they become like Christmas carols. Yeah, we get them once a year. And yeah, they're kind of there. And yeah, I like this version rather than that version. The truth is amazing. And God's people who've been freed and protected are called to celebrate. So sing praises to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. So exalt before him. Scream before him make a big deal of him and make a lot of noise in the process why so that in verse 32 we can read this toward the end of the psalm if you do that if you don't treat god apathetically as though what he's done to come and save you is boring and barely worth your time if we would instead choose to celebrate what result could that have oh kingdoms of the earth you then sing to god Not just us, not just the protected, but the rebellious he would have defeated could ultimately turn back to the point that they would celebrate their own defeat. Not just the people of God, but the kingdoms of the earth sing to God, sing praises to God who rides through the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Church, what gets you excited? What is it? What is it about this next year you're looking forward to that brings a song up inside you? And I just say, man, we are missing the point of what God is doing if what God has done doesn't actually enter into that equation at all. 
So first question coming out of the first thing is, when was the last time you, not because somebody else told you to, you read about what God had done. You were reminded of something God had done for you, and it brought a song to your lips. This is one of the commands that we sing to the Lord and that we exult before him. Make a big deal of God. Second thing we should do, verse 34, is then give credit to God. Not just with songs, but somewhere deep inside us. When you tell the story of your life, who gets credit for your success? David says, ascribe it to God. The power, ascribe it to God. His majesty is over Israel and his power is in the skies. So when you look back and somebody asks, hey, how was 2022? What was the year like? And you're trying to tell the story of what went well. Does God come in as the force and the power behind it? David says he ought to. And I feel that. If there's something about this that, that really clicked with me and that I feel like I need to repent over, I so many times feel weakness. That's at times when I feel strength or when I feel something go well, I so want to immediately attach my name to it. And I want people to know that this went well because I did this. I did that. And therefore this went well. Ascribe power to Darren. Oh, people who are listening to my story. That's not the way I ought to tell my story. And if you hear me telling my story, maybe just quote this psalm to me. Hey, Darren, ascribe power to God because it's not your power that rides through the heavens. It's his. So when we tell our story, when we look back, and we ask, why have, why have things gone well for us? The second thing David tells us to do is not just sing the rehearsed songs, but as you retell your story, ascribe power to God. Give him credit. And then lastly, ask for his help. Verse 35, it ends with a statement about God, but what I think is then an implied command to his people. It's not direct, but if you see the logic of it, it's in there. Verse 35 says, Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. So blessed be God. There is a command in that, that we give credit to God. But there's an implied command in it. That if power and strength don't come from me, if power and strength don't come from my friends, if power and strength don't come from my story or my history, if power and strength come from God, then I should probably go to God when I feel weak. It's so easy for us to solve our problems in our own strength. But kind of the the part B to the fact that if we're going to tell the story of how things went well in the past and we're going to give credit to God, then when we look to the future and we ask, how is 2023 going to go well also? Well, we should probably preemptively give credit to God by asking him for the power and the strength and the help that we need. 
So let's close our time by doing exactly that. Let me, let me lead us in prayer. Father, this battle has been rough. We survey the battlefields and we see the damage around us, Lord. We see our part at times and even taking up arms. And welcoming into our homes those who have been spies and treacherous. And believing the voices and lies of the enemy. So I thank you for the reminder that you have always been opposed, but you are engaged. And because of Jesus, you are ultimately victorious. And God, we're grateful that we didn't have to be impressive in order to earn your generosity. We're grateful that we didn't have to be strong in order to be worthy of greater and more strength. But Lord, we look to the past and we see that you get all credit for anything that has gone well. And we look to the future and when we survey our own strength, we are anxious. And we are worried. We don't see enough money. We don't see enough time. We don't see enough talent. But when we look to the future and we see that you have all power and strength, Lord, we gladly bring our weakness before you. And so with the voice of this church, I lead us in declaring, oh God, we are weak and you are strong. We are needy and you are not. We are vulnerable and you are victorious. And so we pray as we look to the future, oh God, would you be our strength? Oh God, would you take the 10,000 chariots of your army and would you protect us and lead us into battle? And Lord, where we are giftless, we look to you and we pray, would you increase our strength? Would you give us the gifts that we need for the mission and the defense of your kingdom? Father, we belong to you and we will not fear the enemy or the future anymore. Thank you that we're settled in your home and that we're provided for by your generosity and care. And now, Lord, I pray that you would empower us to sing and to exult before you, the triumphant and glorious one. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for dealing with the mask. Thanks for dealing with the burden. But let's stand and sing unencumbered for the God is worthy of all of our praise.